This is the Yale University Press Podcast. I'm Claire Barnes, and I'm so excited to welcome and introduce our guest, Matthew Ichihasi Potts. Potts is the Plummer Professor of Christian Morals at Harvard Divinity School and the minister in the Memorial Church at Harvard University. In his new book with Yale University Press, Forgiveness, an Alternative Account, Potts reflects on forgiveness as the refusal of retaliatory violence through practices of penance and grief. Author Constance M. Fury extols forgiveness as a profound and moving book. Potts convincingly demonstrates that contemporary novelists understand what Christian theology too often forgets. Forgiveness is more tragic than triumphant. I'm so excited to talk further about your new work. Uh, welcome, Matt. Thanks, Claire. I'm glad to be on the podcast. I, I'm a fan of it, and so it's kind of a thrill to, to be speaking on it. Great. Well, I'm so excited to start with your definition of forgiveness. And I had mentioned it before, but I'll just reiterate that in in your book, you, you mentioned that forgiveness is more akin to mourning, um, a refusal of retaliatory violence that lives in the future. And I'm wondering if you can talk to us about how you arrived at this definition of forgiveness. Yeah, I, you know, I, that's a great question. And I, and I, I, you know, I didn't start with the definition and then work my way through what I thought that meant. I, I actually started with some frustrations or concerns I had with the way forgiveness is thought and practice, especially in Christian communities, right? Um, and this comes, you know, from a number of directions. It comes from just sort of observing the political landscape of our country and seeing the way forgiveness is thought about and talked about, especially in the last five or 10 years um, uh, around, you know, with, with the Black Lives Matter movement and its comparisons between it and the civil rights movement and, you know, how the Christian how the Christian tradition is 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 or isn't influencing those movements, um, and and the concerns that were being raised and are being raised by activists about the value of forgiveness and unconditional forgiveness in particular, right? And then the other thing is, you know, as you mentioned, I'm a minister, I'm a pastor, and I've I've served churches, you know, basically the whole time I've been teaching at Harvard as well um, for about twelve years now, I guess, and and I. I see people in their lives and I see people struggle with forgiveness in their lives. And I see the way that forgiveness often bears out as further harm to a person that's been victimized, especially when you have a tradition like Christianity, which, which in which forgiveness is obligatory, right? There's a command to forgive. You must forgive. When a person is told a person who's been hurt or wounded or abused is told they must forgive if they have trouble forgiving, that feels like a failure. It feels like a shame, a, a religious shame that is, an, you know, salt in the wound of the of the pain they're already feeling. Um, and so those are the things that made me really concerned with the way that forgiveness is practiced. And so I wanted to start asking questions about, okay, what is wrong with the way that forgiveness is practiced? Where are the, where are the, 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 the difficult parts of it, the harmful parts of it? And are those actually necessary to an idea of what we think forgiveness could be and are there resources within the tradition um, broadly construed scripture and the theological and Western philosophical tradition? Um, are there resources for thinking through how else we might think about forgiveness? And so I arrived at the refusal of retaliatory violence as a definition because of other definitions I didn't like. 
So I should probably say something about the definitions I didn't like, or more specifically about them, right? There are two in particular, although there's others and related ideas, but two in particular, which is first, I think in a lot of colloquial usage, we think that forgiveness means that we're not angry anymore. When you tell someone, I forgive you, it suggests I'm not angry anymore, right? Um, and and I think it's hard to tell people who have been hurt, you are not angry or you cannot be angry or your anger is itself a moral failing, right? When anger is just like a natural response to, to being harmed. Um, and it, looking back in the tradition in the sources, it didn't seem to me that that the policing of affect or the policing of emotion needed to be central to our definition of what forgiveness is, even though it functions that way in our speech and how we think about forgiveness and how people talk about forgiveness. And the other thing that worried me about forgiveness was is, is that it's really closely allied. It often collapses into the idea of reconciliation. So when you say to someone, I forgive you, what that suggests is that you're inviting reconciliation. But you know, often the person who's hurt you maybe doesn't deserve to reconcile with you yet. They have not acknowledged that they have done wrong. They have not proven that they are safe to be in relationship with, right? And like, you know, I had a person in my own pastoral life who's who had a, a an, an ex-spouse who was an abuser and did not want to forgive him because she did not want to be in relationship with him. She wished him no harm, but she didn't want to be in relationship with him. And so she thought she wasn't forgiving him. And I felt like there, there needs to be some moral space between her her intention for him for her intending him no harm, not wishing him any ill, but also not trusting him enough to be in relationship with him. I felt like there needed to be some moral space between those two positions. And it seems to me that's the moral space where, where forgiveness can live, which is I do, I can love my enemy. I can intend the good of my enemy while also keeping a safe distance from my enemy. And that's, that's, that's something we need to recognize because the person like this parishioner of mine, she was feeling great shame because she could not forgive as Jesus has commanded to her. And as a pastor, what I wanted to tell her is, you should not feel shame, you are safe. And that's the right thing. Thank you for specifying the definitions of forgiveness that you wanted to problematize. And throughout forgiveness, you write about criminal punishment, you write about mass movements for justice, um, and the ways in which those movements tie in forgiveness. And particularly, I'm interested in in your thoughts on, and if you can expand on your thoughts on on structural oppressions and, and criminal punishment, because you write in, in your chapter on atonement, uh, these affective and lawful conditions smuggle white supremacy, sexism, coloniality, and other forms of structural violence into forgiveness. And I think you also asked the question, which is both relevant for personal forgiveness and perhaps national or structural forms of forgiveness, who gets to decide which angers are justified and which are not. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about this question and and perhaps how it relates to your discussion of colonialism and other forms of overlapping violence in your book. Yeah, I think that question of one of the reasons I'm concerned about anger, about not saying that the giving up of anger must be what forgiveness is, is because the policing of anger, the policing of affect is so closely related to policing, right? The, dis- the disciplining of people and bodies, right? And so you can just raise the question in contemporary American culture, who is allowed to be angry, right? Like who, which, which angers are we allowed or which angers are, are allowed to, to be expressed? People of color, Black people in particular, that anger is read culturally by a white supremacist culture as threatening, right? 
whether or not it's actually threatening violence, the fact of the anger becomes a thing that's policed. And women often are not allowed to be angry, right? If, if women express anger, then they are, instead of expressing power or, or strength or concern, they're expressing something else. And those emotions are policed. And what I want to move away from is policing of emotions. And the reason is, is because if you look at folks who do forgive in public, if you look at, you know, after the, the shooting in, at uh, Mother Emanuel AME Church in Charleston, some of the families at the white supremacist shooter, Dylan Roof's arraignment, some of the families did offer him forgiveness, not all of them, but some of them offered him forgiveness. But some of those who offered forgiveness also said, I am angry and I will always be angry. And yet I forgive you. Right now, the, the kind of public media narrative that that went forth from that was like, oh, all the Charleston, Charleston families forgave, which it wasn't all of them. And they focused on the forgiveness. But in follow up interviews with the families who had offered forgiveness, they said, we're still angry. Focus on the anger because the anger, the anger means something is not right. Yes, we forgave him. But that doesn't have anything to do with whether or not we have been harmed, whether our harm has been redressed, whether or not we are still angry. And so paying attention to who's allowed to feel anger or which anger we pay attention to, or in the case of my book, right, or my concerns, which angers forgiveness tries to hide and suppress, that's what I'm concerned about. And I'm concerned about it. I mean, I mean, kind of historically and theoretically, I, I thought through this with the aid of a 18th century Anglican bishop and moral philosopher named Joseph Butler, and I'll try not to get too deep in the weeds with Bishop Butler for your for your listeners. But Butler tells these sermons. He has these sermons on morality that he gives, and he gives a couple of them on forgiveness. And you know, about maybe a full half of his sermons on forgiveness are actually about why anger is good, why anger is something we should we should respect and hold on to. And he says it's because anger because anger tells us when we've been harmed, and it it tells us who to defend, and that's an important virtue as well. His concern is, oh, you can't abuse your anger. You can feel anger. Of course you feel anger. That's natural. It's natural to feel anger and important to feel anger. What matters is how you act in, in response to your anger and your actions in response to your anger. That's what's important. Now, that's great. And I like that. And that's one of the things I was thinking about. But then it gets tricky with Butler because Butler starts thinking about, okay, then how do we decide when an, a reaction to anger is reasonable or unreasonable? Um, and he basically says the way we decide is we get some neutral parties and ask them, ask them if a response to anger is reasonable or unreasonable, right? If the people who are directly involved in the conflict can't understand whether or, not whether or not their own anger is reasonable. So we bring in some neutral third parties and those folks decide, you know, now in the 21st century, I can ask the question, is there any such thing as a neutral third party? In a culture like Joseph Butler's or in our culture, are there folks who can actually neutrally decide when an anger is justified or not, or when a reaction to anger is justified or not? I think that when we do decide those things, those decisions are deeply structured by our prejudices, deeply structured by the systems of violence that that frame our understandings and frame frame the way we live. And interestingly, you know, this is one of the reasons why in his essays, in his sermons, Butler says no vengeance, no abuse of anger, but he does say. But by the way, the crown has the right to torture and kill people because those are neutral third parties who are deciding what's a reasonable response to, to their anger, right? And so you can see how even his, in his own essays, he arrives at a place where he can justify a form of retaliatory or retributive violence in order to uphold the systems of power that he wants to uphold. Yeah, I, I think um, it's really interesting to, to, to hear about the thinkers that you're moving with and, and against. And... In reading your book, uh, I was struck by how forgiveness seems to operate on 
on different scales, and we've talked a lot about about those. And while there can be public anger from, say, the survivors of, of, of violence, there are also, you know, the national leaders that are kind of entangled in um, the rhetoric of, of, of anger in the news and, and whatnot. And I'm wondering if, if you've, you've thought through how national leaders offer forgiveness or even ask for forgiveness for wrongdoings. And can you talk or speak more about national trauma and forgiveness? Yeah, that's a great question. I, you know, I, I haven't thought a lot about that, or I don't think a lot about that in the book, but I, I think about it personally um, for a couple of reasons, just because I, I'm Japanese American. My mom is an immigrant from Japan to this country. And, um, you know, my grandfathers, my respective grandfathers fought on opposite sides of World War II. My, my mom's father was, uh, was in the Japanese army. My, my grandfather, my dad's father was, a, was in the U.S. Navy. Um, and so I think about sort of national wrongs, national harms, and the, the particular personal family history of my own like brings that into into unique relief because you know Japan had, Japan committed atrocious war crimes throughout throughout East Asia during World War II, um, and they have apologized many times, but but never very well or in a way that sits well with the people that they that they harmed. Um, and they continue to revere war criminals as uh, in shrines in the in the Yasukuni shrine in in, in Japan. Um, they kind of revere them as as ancestors of the nation, um, and so that's really problematic. Like, what what is the role of national leaders and and of Japan to 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 show more remorse and show repentance. How is that achieved? And then you look on the American side where, you know, Japanese immigrants and Japanese American citizens who were in this country uh, in the forties um, were interned, right? And and uh, in concentration camps and mostly in the American West, although a couple in the South as well. And and those folks, you know, they, President Reagan did apologize in a public way and actually gave some modest reparations to to the descendants of, of those folks or some of the still living uh, survivors of, um, of internment. And so you have like within my own kind of personal family, you know, broadly construed cultural history, this idea of like national apology. I mean, I think for me, what's important is one of the ways I'm thinking about forgiveness is that it is a form of mourning. And by that, I mean, I worry that some some of the ways we think about retributive violence or retaliatory violence is this is a, a futile attempt to undo the past to try to compensate for a loss to try to bring back something that was lost and i don't i don't think that means that people who act out in violence believe that their violence is going to you know bring back the the brother or sister who was killed in war right but there is this idea of compensation like you took from me so i'll take from you and then there will be balance again something will be restored some balance will just be restored which was lost before the initial crime or the initial wrongdoing. Um, and so I think there is retaliatory violence does have this kind of implied impulse towards restoring something, even if not the literal thing that was lost, some sense of balance or order. Um, and, and what I want to do, what I think forgiveness does, or at least the refusal of retaliatory violence does, is turn away from the fantasy that anything can be restored, right? Like something which, when they're lost, cannot be brought back all you can do is try to make something new. And that to me, again, this kind of comes from my pastoral experience, that to me sounds a lot like what I see when I work with families who are grieving. When someone that they've lost is 
is has been taken from them by disease or by accident um, or by catastrophe or, or whatever, often the the work of mourning is not to try to restore a sense of balance. It's it's instead to try to learn how to live in this new world, which is forever different. Learn how to live off balance for a while, maybe, or to find a new kind of balance, not the old one. And so I think in terms of national forgiveness or national penitence, I think the posture ought to be, the posture of our national leaders ought to be to, to speak frankly about what we have lost and what we have done and what we cannot regain. So in, you know, in, in contemporary American culture, there's not in the center of public debate, but I think actively and on the margins, and importantly, there is a conversation about reparations for slavery. And I believe there ought to be reparation, reparations for slavery. Um, but I don't believe there ought to be reparations for slavery because I believe that that reparations could actually compensate for the magnitude of that crime. I believe that reparations would cause this country to engage in a difficult process of reflection and mourning for what we did and cannot undo. And that, and that the, the act of thinking about distributing, thinking through the complicated process of trying to, trying to, to, to give reparations would force us to wrestle with the deep magnitude of, of the brokenness, which is what mourning is. It's the reckoning with the deep, the depth. It's a reckoning with the depth of, of, of a brokenness or a loss. And that's, that's what I want from national leaders is to not stand up and say, oh, everything can be fixed and everything is fine and we're all good and we're all great. It's instead to say, you know, we can build the future. The future still waits for us, but we can only build the future well if we take honest stock of the past and the present. We can only build a sure foundation if we know what, you know, what bedrock we're building upon. And that just takes, that takes honesty with the past. And, 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 you know, just like I said, I, I project out a lot of this out of my pastoral experience. That's how folks rebuild their lives after, after devastating loss, um, by taking real stock of that loss and living with it and figuring out how to live in a new way and often a very fruitful and useful and important, uh, way, but in a different way than ever was before. And, and sometimes in a way that, you know, that, that brings them a lot of sorrow and grief and anguish anguish as they make their way towards towards those new forms of life. Yeah, thank you um, for really grappling with that, my question, quite deeply. And um, one of the, I think it provides a nice transition, the your ending statements um, in on your experience with um, your congregation uh, in in forgiveness, you often evoke fictional relationships. You use uh, literature to explore how private forms of forgiveness or, uh, become public. And I'm wondering if you could speak to the relationship, not only between literature and, and scripture, but also the ways in which literature might provide um, enrichment for the Christian experience of forgiveness. That's a good question. There's, there's two in there, which is the relation between uh, fiction and scripture or literary fiction and scripture. Um, and the other is between um, sort of literature and theology, I guess, mm -hmm. or literature and philosophy. I think those are the two questions, right? Okay. Yes. <laughs> try, those are those are both really hard, <laughs> both really complicated. And I think I, I mostly uh, dodge those questions in, in the book, but, but so it's for you to ask them. Um, let me start with the scripture question, which is complicated. Um, 
you know, scripture is important and unique. I'm a Christian priest and a Christian minister. And I, so I, I do think that, that scripture um, is a, is a unique and singular witness for those of us who, who call ourselves Christian, or at least for most of us who do. Um, but I also think that, you know, part of the problem of scripture is that it does not give us answers in the way we want them. Right. So one of the folks I quote in the book is a former teacher of mine, Mark Jordan, who taught at Harvard and among other places. Um, uh, and Professor Jordan, you know, I can't get the quote exactly right, but he says something like any account of the Christian story, which starts as anything other than one story told four ways, is not being faithful to the story. And then what he's suggesting is that, you know, we we have our even if you just start with the canonical gospels and you know as my colleagues here at harvard who studied early christianity will tell you there's a lot more than the four canonical ones but even if you start with the four gospels the one that that the powers agreed should be included together they're a mess they're contradictory they don't say the same thing they don't tell the same story they're similar in some ways but but whatever they think you know, whatever they, whatever answers they are pointing to are not the sort of answers that we tend to seek when we go looking for answers, which is clear and straightforward and can be summarized in a line or two type of answers, right? <laughs> because if that were the case, they would choose one gospel and say the other ones were just a little bit wrong. Instead of saying, here are four which disagree and they are all necessary and you have to wrestle with them together. To me, what that suggests is what's important is the wrestling. What the scripture is trying to invite us into is not is not to fixate upon one answer as the one, which is the kind of governing authority, but instead to invite us into a relationship of struggle with this word, this revelation that we've received, to invite us in a, into a relationship of, of searching and meaning making, where we have an answer one day, which maybe doesn't work for us tomorrow, and so we have to look again, or we have to, we have to search for answers because it's not clear from the text. That is actually sort of the devotional and spiritual practice that having one story told four ways, if you're just looking at the Gospels, and of course the Bible's a lot bigger than that. That's, the, that's what that summons from us. And that's what I like, you know, to kind of transition. That's kind of what I like about literary fiction. Um, and and, and it's, it, would be, you know, it's, it would be reductive for me to say that all theology and all philosophy does this, but a lot of theology and a lot of philosophy does what I said scripture is working against, which it tries to give an answer. In fact, you might say that my book does what I'm trying to work against, which is try to give a definition of what forgiveness is. You know, I'm saying, oh, it's a refusal of retaliatory violence. And I do think that's probably what it is. But I also know that as soon as you kind of confine that definition to that one line, a lot of the messiness and difficulty and complication of forgiveness is, is lost. And, and disciplinary theology and philosophy I mean, really good theology and philosophy captures a lot of that messiness, but but the just kind of the the aim of the discipline is for is for clarity and for precision, right? But when you get into a novel like The Very Giant by Kazuo Ishiguro, or like Gilead by by uh, Marilyn Robinson, or La Rose by Louise Erdrich, or, or Beloved by Toni Morrison, which are the four novels I read, when you get to those novels, it's more like the one story told four ways. You know, and in fact, in Beloved, there are multiple, multiple voices operating in the same book. It, it, the problem is presented as a problem. What's presented is the problem, not a solution, right? And that's, that's part of the reason why I want to lean into fiction and why I think fiction is a useful resource for thinking theologically and thinking philosophically. Sorry, the daughter just broke. For thinking theologically and thinking philosophically.
thinking theologically and thinking philosophically about forgiveness. And then there's one more, one more thing about it, which is I think that's that's also another reason why I think using fiction is uniquely important or particularly important about for an exploration of forgiveness in particular is that I think there's something about sort of undecidability or our failure to actually ever quite, quite know the answer, which to me is linked dispositionally to the idea of what forgiveness is. You know, Hannah Arendt in, in The Human Condition, which is an, another book I, I look at in my book, she talks about forgiveness as kind of the, the human um, the human action by which we deal with the fact that we cannot predict the outcome of our actions, right? That we can take it, we take an action in the world and we maybe intend for it to be good, but it might not turn out the way we want it to. And that's why we need forgiveness because we, we can't actually be sure how things are going to go. That undecidability, that uncertainty is just kind of built into what it means to be in the world. And that's sort of why we need forgiveness as a way to relate to each other. Um, and I think that's also the way we relate to things like fiction or scripture for reading it a particular way this kind of from this position of undecidability of uncertainty where we're trying to find our way but we might wake our way through it we might make our way through it and come out the other side having ended up in the wrong place right and and so bringing fiction and scripture into this theological philosophical study was important for me because it would also invite the reader to try to inhabit that space of of, of uncertainty and undecidability with respect to forgiveness so even though i give the definition i also want that definition i want that definition to be one that's held loosely and that has some pressure upon it by a lot of other points and, and points of view within the book. Yeah, to to talk about the messiness of forgiveness, um, it's the uncertainty of our future and perhaps failure. I'm wondering if we could turn uh, to an avenue in which people often ask for forgiveness, which is Twitter. Yeah. And yeah. <laughs> And uh, Jill Lepore, who is an American historian and journalist, recently uh, talked about your book in a New Yorker article on forgiveness. And the title of her article was The Case Against the Twitter Apology, Our 21st Century Culture of Performed Remorse Has Become a Sorry Spectacle. Uh, can you speak to um, what you know Jill calls the spectacle of forgiveness on social media and how failure plays into online expressions of forgiveness? Yeah, I was really grateful that that Professor Laporte uh, took a look at, at my book, and 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 um, and I'm grateful of the way that, that she read it in that article. I don't, you know, I don't pretend to be an expert on media or social media, um, and I'm not even very active. I mean, I lurk around Twitter, but I don't really post very much. I, I think I think what I would say, and I think this is true in the article that she wrote, which you know I'll commend to your your listeners as well. I think what makes me concerned about social media behavior in general is, is sort of the anxiety for purity, right? Like that, that there are certain postures and positions, which are, which are, which are the right ones to have. And then other ones, which are the wrong ones to have. And depending on who you are, you have different ideas about what the right ones and the wrong ones are. And, and apologies and forgiveness tend to, tend to fall upon, fall upon lines of trying to, you know, replace, place oneself or replace oneself back within the circle of those who are in the good or in the right. Um, and, and I think what, what Professor Lepore is suggesting, I think what I would suggest for my book is that the idea that you can, that you can do anything 
all the way right is already a problem, right? That the, one of the reasons we need forgiveness is that all of us are, are in the wrong in some way, um, sort of all the time, right? Um, and that the kind of anxiety over over purity is um, is something that forgiveness works against, right? Now, I you know I'm not. I think that the the like excitement around cancel culture is way overblown. I think I think people should apologize when they hurt people. I think when they say wrong things or offensive things, it's probably right to for for them to apologize. And I don't think everybody has a right to 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 you know if people are saying things that are ugly or offensive, you know I don't think that we're obligated to listen to them. So 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 I'm not like I'm not like a, a critic of quote unquote cancel culture. And in general, I think it's probably just trying to lift up voices which in the past have not been heard while trying to kind of moderate the space or modulate the spaces of voices that have been too loud um but one thing that does concern me is and this is not this is not of any particular group in particular but of all groups is just sort of the policing of boundaries of who's in and who's out and how you get in and get out and in order to be in you have to prove your kind of bona fides for being in um when when i think a posture of forgiveness or or thinking about forgiveness in the way that i think the christian tradition does or that i want to or that professor lapore does in the article is is like instead like to begin from a position of just like sorrow and anguish that we actually can't do quite right that we're always going to get it wrong i mean i think about this as a christian a lot like i think the christian tradition holds great truth and and great um great meaning and great potential to transform lives. Um, but if I forget for for a second, like the long and awful and sordid history of Christian anti-Semitism, how deep the violence of, of my tradition runs, how, you know, the long history of, of, of colonialism that's associated with Christianity or punishing queer people, like all these things, like in order to truly be who I am, I have to recognize that all that part, all that all that all those things come along with me in my tradition and i don't just get to step outside of them because i hate them like they're actually they're deeply ingrained in 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 the in the identity i have and so every step i take i have to take with care and be aware that even all my good intentions or all my attempts to to leave behind that past some of that past is brought along with me often in ways that i might not recognize and i need people other people to signal those things to me and and that just means I need people to be forgiving, right? Because I can't but bring those things along. And when I do, I have to be open to the idea that people are going to call me out. And I can't be scared of asking for forgiveness because if I'm going to hold this identity, I have to realize that I'm bringing that stuff along. And I think a lot of the identities many of us carry, that's just true of them. They, these histories come along with us and there's no kind of original posture of purity we can begin from. Rather, we need to begin from this posture of sort of mourning and and post, uh, posture of sorrow where 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 our starting point is one where we are already broken and trying to find our way to new relationship new life and and, and new beginning thank you uh before we conclude uh is there anything else that you'd like our listeners to know about the practice of forgiveness but also in general your new book forgiveness Oh boy, I feel like I should have an answer to this question, but <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if I do. Um, yeah, I guess the thing, you know, one thing I didn't dwell on a lot. I think I, I do it maybe by implication in some of my examples. Is 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 self forgiveness, right? I think that I 
as you as you noted in one of your questions, I think I I think about interpersonal forgiveness a lot. I think about interpersonal forgiveness at the like micro level between individuals. I also think about interpersonal forgiveness at a larger scale level. Uh, maybe social forgiveness would be a better way to describe some of that between between groups. Um, but I also think that self forgiveness is a really important thing, and I think the same things apply. I think that we can be that we can get really angry at ourselves, and 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 we can be very punishing towards ourselves. And and but I think that there's a way in which you can decide not to retaliate against yourself when you do something wrong. You can admit you've done something wrong, and even feel some anger without using that anger in a hateful way towards yourself or, or in a, in a way that you start to punish yourself and hurt yourself. Um, because that's another thing I really see in, in, in my pastoral work. I mean, the, the situation just, I described before that, that person who thought that she could not forgive because she did not want to reconcile was, was turning that backwards on herself and not being forgiving of herself, right? Not, not acknowledging that that that's okay. But, um, that she, that she did not need to punish herself, even if it was wrong and it wasn't, but even if it was like, that doesn't mean that she has to, to, to react in a punishing way towards herself. I think, I think these, these retaliatory sort of compensations deeply structure a lot of, a lot of the way we think about our relationships, both social and interpersonal, but also like within oneself as we relate to ourselves. And so, um, I don't really talk about it in the book, but if a person reads the book and finds the ideas interesting, I'd, I'd be glad if they if they try to imagine what implications they might have for for self forgiveness. Thanks so much. Um, thank you so much for thank taking you, the Claire. time out of your day to to talk with us about your new title from the press. I really appreciate it. I'm really glad to. I'm, as I said, I'm really thrilled to be on the podcast. So thanks for taking the time too. Forgiveness and alternative count uh, is now available wherever books are sold. Uh, thank you so much for listening. Uh, please visit us online at YaleBooks.com for more episodes of the podcast, as well as information about all of our books.